<laughs> someone, someone had told me that it, I had duct, they noticed I had duct tape with me, so they realized I was ready for anything. So that's good. So I do, I do um, again, encourage you, if you're free, um, come out for an hour tonight. It's, it is um, a special thing uh, for us to be able to come before God's throne together. Uh, as he's called us to do, challenged us to do, invited us to do, commanded us to do, to find grace and help in time of need. And um, again, even if uh, you don't feel like you're in a time of need, whatever that definition, however you define that, um, come out and intercede for others. We'd really encourage you to. Um, but seven o'clock tonight, as I as I had mentioned. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, um, your word is powerful. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is able to divide right between what we think and, and why we do what we do. Um, and this is all because it's your word. It's because it's, it's our connection to you of, of truth it's our weapon, our offensive weapon against lies, which are the only thing that your enemy has to use against us. Lord, I thank you that we start out when we know Christ is our Savior. We wake up in the morning being double conquerors because we have you who is not going to let anyone bring a charge against us. And we have your son, Jesus, who has died for us. Either one of you would be able to defeat any, anything that would come against us. But we have the both. And we are double conquerors, Father. Lord, I just would pray that you would illuminate your word this morning. Lord, that you would allow us to be able to know that you are the only one worth clinging to in this life. And Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're entering into what I would call our second series, if you will, in the book of John. And by that, I just mean to help you have kind of a flyover overview of where we're at here in the book of John. You might remember that our first series through this made up of John chapters 1 through 4 was really what we saw as um, being on gospel mission with Jesus, the God-man. And, we, and not to review chapters one through four, I'm gonna resist that temptation right now. Um, we're moving into chapter five 
and where we see in chapters 5 through 11 controversy over what Jesus does and who he says he is. And at, at almost like clockwork at the end of each one of these events in chapters 5 through 11, we see those whose faith is, is sunk deeper and stronger into who Christ is and we see those who are like, uh-uh, I, I go no further with this man or I am only more opposed to this man. That's what we see in chapters 5 through 11 and that's why we're calling this forming battle lines of belief and that's what we see happening in this. And I hope that through our time in chapters 5 through 11 we're also able to see ourselves and to be able to see where is it that we are challenged to, or, or maybe where is it that we face the temptation to stop and say, okay, uh, Lord, uh, this is as far as I go. But also to be challenged to, to ask ourselves, am I willing, do I believe, do I follow this man to the ends of the earth on his power? Chapter 5 of this series is really focusing in on the fact that Jesus is equal with God the Father. We'll see in the last verses of our passage this morning where Jesus really lands on uh, the, the crux statement and John describes how significant his statements are and we'll see in this chapter everything going back to those statements of Jesus claiming to be equal with God the Father. And so as we move through in these weeks in John chapter 5, it's all hinging around this idea that Jesus is equal with God the Father. And Jesus will defend that in the passages to come within chapter, chapter 5. So... You may not need to know all this, but it's just uh, my thing to try to want to help you see where we are in this um, gospel um, story that John portrays for us or that the, the passages that he picks out for us. So let's pick up here at first ch- verses of chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda. I keep wanting to call this Bethsaida. I don't know why, but Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, 
It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me that said to me, Take up your bed. Uh, the man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? John's trying to bring us to something there by repeating that, isn't he? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in, in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, as we often need to do as we move through this passage, we want to look at some historical and cultural background and details of what's going on here. And, and um, we're only told by John that this event is taking place sometime after what takes place in chapter 4. When the heal, uh, meaning it, it came after the healing of the Gentile nobleman's son that we looked at at the end of chapter 4, up in uh, the area of Galilee. Now Jesus is back in Jerusalem. This after this statement doesn't give any sense of time period. John doesn't even tell us what feast Jesus is at in Jerusalem. We just know that this is the only event that John records from Jesus' second year of ministry. Jesus' miracle here is one of the seven major signs of John's gospel that points to Jesus being the Messiah. But according to the book, um, Jesus Christ, the Greatest Life, that I read, they say that this is the 18th of 35 major miracles. But John is focusing his gospel in on seven signs between chapters 2 through 11. And this is one of them. So, so why does John choose this event? We also know that this is his second of four visits. Jesus' second of four visits to Jerusalem that are recorded by John. And every visit is met with controversy about who Jesus is because of the signs that he performs and the explanations that he gives. And I believe that John chooses this one event because it fits the theme that he is communicating in his gospel as well as, as how the other events communicate that theme. And that theme was told to us in John 1 verses 11 and 12. Where he says, he, being Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is what we see over and over again up through chapter 11. Is Jesus coming to his own, 
doing something amazing and explaining it in a way that, that ticks a lot of people off. And, and battle lines of belief are drawn. His own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And look at us 2,000 years later. If you've received Christ as your Savior, that's what you're here celebrating this morning. That you were given the right to be called a child of God. And what we're looking back on is how Jesus came into his own and his own did not receive him. Just a little bit more background information here. We're told that Jesus went to a pool near the Sheep Gate in the area of Jerusalem. Um, the, the Sheep Gate area of Jerusalem where disabled people had congregated. Now, here, uh, a map of Jerusalem, you can kind of see I've circled in a little red here, this pool area, and the Sheep Gate area would be somewhere in here. Uh, maybe you can see that the, that the Temple Mount is here up in the northwest corner of the city of Jerusalem. The Sheep Gate was located near the Temple Mount on this northwest corner, north, northwest corner of Jerusalem. This gate was called the Sheep Gate because this was near to the area where sheep that were to be used in the temple sacrifices would have been washed and then brought back into the area for uh, use in the temple. So it's already an area that the, the rich and the pious of Jerusalem would have stayed away from because of the idea of becoming unclean possibly by, by these dirty sheep and things. They would, they would also stay away from the, the filth of the livestock and probably the presence of the disabled. But not Jesus. Recent archaeology had un, has uncovered five these five colonnades in this area to the north corner of Jerusalem, uh, which is depicted in our map here. And, and these five colonnades would be because they would have two pools between them. So you have one, two, three, four, and a fifth colonnade going down the middle. Recent archaeology has uncovered this, this very area. So these colonnades is made up of two rows of columns with a covering between them, which would make for a perfect area for members of the public to spend time out from under the weather. And as you can see in the picture, they, they, these, these areas separate two pools. One or both of these pools would have been the pool of Bethesda. Uh, one last thing that we have to mention here is the absence of verse 4. If you notice that, we go from verse 3 to verse 4. Now, if you have the New American Standard Bible, your Bible still has verse 4 in there, but probably has parentheses or it's in italics or a little note there or something. The reason why this verse is not worth our study is because it does not exist in the oldest manuscripts. And the verse is, serves as a, was, was a sort of explanation of the belief of that day that an angel would come and touch the waters. Okay, but, but it not existing in the oldest manuscripts would, be, would mean that it was likely inserted 
by a scribe at some point in order to explain the belief of the people around the pool. Um, it being inserted by a scribe at some point over the, the centuries of copying would mean it's not a part of the original gospel and this would mean that it's not worth the bother of us to study or understand it because it's just the ideas of men. This is a good example then of a verse fall, failing the test of the historicity of a document. I won't go into that. But and thus being removed from the Bible. And it's also, let me help you to see the absence of verse 4 here is a greater reassurance for us that the rest of Scripture is tested and viable. According, at least, meaning according to the internal and external biographical tests of what we can rely on as being historical. If, if you're like, What? You know, I'd be happy to explain that afterwards. But with that, we come to this morning the idea that we should cling to Jesus because he is God. That we should cling to Jesus because he is God. Two things that I hope the world never runs out of are cardboard and duct tape. All right, you can do anything with them. All right, um, I can remember one of my friends at Moody uh, in the dorms there decided to transform their dorm room one day into a situation of more privacy. The the, the dorm rooms in the in the dorm that I lived in um, were about ten foot by seventeen foot in size, and there was two students, you know, two guys that would live there, and your bed was always in the same place. Your desk was back-to-back, -back, your dressers were back-to-back, -back, and your, your closets were in the same place. These things did not move, okay? And so I can remember one of my friends, two of my friends, were, they were just like, we just need to mix this up a little bit. This is, you know, get, driving us nuts. Let's give ourselves some more privacy. Okay, so I walk into their room one day, and through the use of cardboard and duct tape, they had built a wall in the middle of their room, complete with a door, so that each of them had their own room. You know, forget the fact that one of them had to walk through the other's room in order to get to his. But I guess one, they figured, you get the window, I get the door. You know, it's, it's um, you know, even split there. So that was their idea of let's make some good use of some cardboard and duct tape. My boys and I like to make things with cardboard and duct tape. And one day I'm probably going to look at it and say, you know, if I use wood probably would have lasted a little bit longer, but we're currently working on, um, this wouldn't have worked with wood, but currently working on a robot outfit, you know, with cardboard and duct tape. And one of the challenges, duct tape is a great thing, um, and, and uh, my boys still, they're, they're kind of learning how to, to take duct tape off of the roll and, and tear it. But usually it ends up, before it's torn, it's usually stuck to itself in some ways. Or when it does get torn off, I'm like handed something that kind of looks like this. <laughs> you know, um, the challenge and the, 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 one, the wonder of duct tape and the challenge of duct tape is that it, it clings to things. 
You know, it sticks really well. And if it clings to the wrong thing, namely itself, then you're, it's, it's a problem, right? We are much like duct tape. We want to cling to something. We're going to cling to something, especially during times when we're looking for answers to our problems. We want the answer to be what we want to hear, don't we? Usually, we are more satisfied with clinging to something or someone that we can touch and feel and see. We're meant to cling to Jesus intimately, ultimately, as our foundation for life and our foundation for other relationships. But we can't touch or see him. And it makes it generally hard for us to do this. Plus, we have an enemy that wants to give us plenty of, of reasons not to cling to Jesus. Because that means he's losing the battle for your soul. And so he's going to throw anything between you and Christ and try to get you to cling to that instead. But there's a good reason why we're meant to cling to Jesus. And we're given this solid theology right at the end of this passage. This is a summary statement that explains all the hubbub of this entire chapter. The Jews knew what Jesus was getting at with what he was doing and saying in this incident. The statement of Jesus is, they're seen here for us through the understanding of the Jewish leaders. And it's an understanding that, that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. That he was equating himself with God. We understand what is being talked about here. Jesus is a member of the triune Godhead as God the Son along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is one in attributes and essence and yet a separate person with separate personality and role. This is the same sense as in Philippians 2.6 when we're told about Jesus becoming a man for us where we're told in Philippians 2, 5, and 6, have this mind among yourselves, which was also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And what this is describing here is the fact that Jesus is equal with the Godhead, but in his incarnation, he submitted himself to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. And that's what it means when he didn't, he didn't, think that his being in the form of God was something that he should hold on to, but was willing to submit to the other members of the Godhead during his time on this earth. In the following weeks, we'll focus on the dynamics and the meaning of this statement that Jesus is equal with God. As Jesus will explain and argue for this from many different directions with these Jewish leaders. For now, we can just know that this is a regular topical tango between Jesus and the Jews. We'll see this again in verse 10. Verses 30 through 31 we see where Jesus makes the statement, I and the Father are one. And what's the Jewish response? The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
So, so you see these battle lines of belief being drawn again and again in these chapters that we're looking at. This morning we're looking at the sad story about people who were clinging to a lot of man-made ideas. The saddest part is how we see that the ideas that they were clinging to caused them to miss who Jesus is. In fact, these Jewish leaders don't just miss who Jesus is, but because they're clinging, and this is because they're clinging to something else, they despise him. Because to believe in him means that they must let go of the man-made things that they're clinging to. And the first of these is that we want to see that we are called to cling to Jesus, not to a myth. Not to a myth. We pick up in verse 5 through 7 where it says, "One, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he was, had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am, I am going another steps down before me. The definition of a myth, okay? I googled this. The definition of a myth is a widely held but false belief or idea. A widely held but false belief or idea. A belief that has no authority behind it other than the fact that others believe it or others can attest to that their experience Approves it, but there's no authority beyond that. You realize that the light, the average life expectancy for a man at this time in this incident is about 40 years. So this man, having been lame for 38 years, had been so for about as long as most men lived. At that time. And let's not forget that John focuses signs in which Jesus does an over-the-top amazing thing. Okay? We've seen him make jars that are filled to the brim with water into jars that are filled to the brim with the best wine. We've seen him heal a man's son from 14 miles away. These are the type of signs that John chooses to illustrate for his readers that Jesus presented himself in amazing ways to people that were his own, but they did, they did not receive him. And so this idea that he's directed to a man who says, it says here that Jesus knew he'd been there a long time. There's a reason for that. That Jesus is there to prove something with this man. The belief that of that day was, as I mentioned, that was that an angel would rustle these waters of the pools somehow. 
And again, this is, this is explained in verse 4, which, which has been removed from here because it was, it was um, inserted there later. But the reality is that this pool, and we know from archaeology now, that this pool of Bethesda was fed by springs. And that they were probably intermittent springs. So that the water which sat there, um, you know, crystal clear and, and glass smooth, at times would be fed by these, these intermittent springs and would bubble and gurgle and ripple for a time. And the, the idea was that, that had spread, the myth was the first person to get into the water gets healed. Can you imagine these folks sitting around, talking, looking, 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 talking, being friends with each other, and then it's like, but I'm going to step on you to get in that water. That's how we can get when we cling to a myth. Notice the man's fixation in his reply to Jesus. Jesus has a question that answers the greatest need that he saw that he had at that time. Do you want to be healed? And I picture this guy not being able to take his eyes off the pool. You know, Jesus is standing there. Do you want to be healed? And he's like, but you don't understand. Um, every time it rustles, I don't have anybody to get me in there. You know, I need somebody to get me in the water. In his mind, all he was missing was someone who could get him in the water before someone else did so. I wonder if he does look up at Jesus, if, if, if he has this look of longing in his eyes, as if to say, would you be interested in staying here with me to get me in the water? Here standing before him is the creator of, of the universe, God in the flesh, who can do anything. And the greatest tragedy of this moment is he can't take his eyes off this myth. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And then we're told, and at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. What grace of our Lord Jesus. Right? I mean, you would, we expect it to say, and this man saw, and he had faith, and he realized who this was. No, we're told he can't take his eyes off the water. He can't take his eyes off the myth. Even though he's fixated on something else and missing the glory of Jesus standing before him, Jesus heals the man. This is just like the nobleman of Capernaum that we learned about in chapter 4. There's no sign here that there was any need for this man to have faith prior to Jesus doing this healing work. Like the nobleman where Jesus just says, go, your son is healed. Also like that experience, the language is very clear here. We're told here that Jesus says, take it up and get going. And we're told that the man was healed with the same word, and with the same words, basically, he took it up and he got going. 
You know, when I was a student at Moody, we had um, one cafeteria option, all right? And, you know, there's different options on the hotline. A lot of times it was something greasy or something greasier, you know. And then you could go over to the salad bar if you were a rabbit, you know, or something like that. But uh, the meals got pretty predictable. I, it seemed like every Sunday they, they cooked chicken Kiev, okay, which was like this, um, it was like this, this chicken mound, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it was, it was filled, it was injected with like butter, okay, and this thing became um, known as chicken Chernobyl instead of chicken Kiev because it had ruined so many Sunday ties because men would poke into it and butter all over their chest. So chicken Kiev had become known as chicken Chernobyl. And I visited, you know, if I visit Moody anytime recently, there's, there's more developments. You know, there's this big student center and there's a different cafeteria there. So the students are like, where do you want to eat? You know, this place or this place or they can take their meal ticket over here. You know, it's, it's different in that way. They can avoid the nuclear butter meltdown on their Sunday best. Today, finding answers to life's troubles is viewed as if it doesn't matter where you eat from as long as you're satisfied. That's how the world today and many in the church view dealing with life's troubles. It doesn't matter where you get it from as long as you're satisfied. Whatever makes you happy, right? Or, or in the back of their mind, they might be thinking, whatever gets you off my back. You know, I thought of using a number of words for this principle. It could, we could say cling to Jesus, not supernaturalism, not superstition, not spirituality, which is a thing of our day. But I realize it's the same issue for us when we're looking to a myth for help. Whether it's bad relationships or surfing the internet or sex or having a large enough retirement savings. If it's not Jesus that we're clinging to, to find meaning or purpose or strength or just life. We will waste away clinging to that thing just because lots of other people are doing it. The man in our story illustrates why it is devastating to be committed, certain, or convinced of the wrong solution. I think that we would agree that his commitment to a lie was ruining what abundant life he could have. Where's his family? Where's his friends? His friends and family had become people that would step on him to get into the pool. What kind of life would he have living sitting next to this superstitious pool along with a bunch of desperate people. And I've heard recently that one of the challenges or one of the problems with the internet is that a person can find 10 people anywhere in the world that gives legitimacy to their myth. Okay? You can find 10 people anywhere in the world that will tell you that... 
you can be allergic to water. I don't know. You know, and that's your problem. The answer is that clinging to anything besides Jesus for life and meaning is a sham. I can't help but notice a secondary idea here too. Here we find the good shepherd coming near to where the sheep are brought into the temple and he takes one of his sheep from among a flock of injured and broken. And he mends its broken legs for it to go and enter the temple rather than cling to a myth. You know, sadly, I don't know if this, if this sheep even knew who this shepherd really was that touched him that day. I was reading this in my devotions this morning where it explains how it is that Jesus makes people into his sheep. Where it says in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And what that's describing is that when we receive Christ as our Savior, that it's as if we died on the cross with him to our sins. And we rose from the grave with him to a new life of righteousness. And then it goes on, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the way the scripture describes the person who comes to Christ as their savior. I, mean, I just want to ask you, are you looking to Christ for life? Or has it been so long since you have looked to him that you wouldn't know your shepherd's life-giving work? Well, we see some other characters here in our story this morning. We see that Jesus, we should cling to Jesus, not to religious rules. We read in verses 9 through 16, at least the second half of verse 9 through 16, where John says, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now it says, now the man who had been healed did not know who he, it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, send no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, I want to guard against something here, okay? I don't know what has gone on in this man's life. We're not told definitively here that this man is lame because of sin, okay? Um, I would probably argue that that's not the case because having been lame for 38 years and the average life expectancy being age 40, this would mean this man would have been lame for 38 years because of something that he did in his childhood. Okay? So, don't let this run away in your mind like, oh, 
all physical problems are because of sin. We even see later that, that Jesus' disciples ask him about a man who's blind from birth and saying, is it because he sinned or because of his parents? And Jesus says, neither. But this man is in this condition so that God might be glorified through him. Okay? So we see the otherwise being taught. So I just want to put a stop to possibly the enemy's discouragement there with that. Uh, we do know from Scripture that illness can result, be a result of sin. We're also taught in Scripture that illness can certainly come simply for God to be glorified through it. Okay? We're, we're taught both sides of that. Um, we don't know definitively why Jesus is saying this to him. So we leave it alone. Good enough? It says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting him. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He being Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath. We're also told, not told here, why the man went and told the Jews. Okay? Um, I think that it was probably because of his fear of what they might be thinking of doing to him. Stoning someone was not uncommon for breaking their Sabbath rules. Uh, the most significant ideas of this section, though, take place in verses 9 through 12. Here we find more sad examples of people who missed the chance of being changed for eternity because they were fixated on what they thought was the answer. John includes this little detail that changes the situation completely. It's kind of like when you're telling this story, a man's telling this story of how he made all these goof-ups one day, you know, in his relationship with his wife, and then he comes to the end, and he's like, and turns out it was our anniversary, you know? And it's like, oh. You know, when John says, now that day was the Sabbath, the original reader's like, oh. I don't think that Jesus was saying, well, I'm sorry. I don't think John was saying here um, that this shouldn't have been done or, or, or anything like that. It was the Sabbath. And guess what? The Jewish rabbis had added many laws to the Mosaic law as we, as we were talking about before. One of these was that it was breaking the Sabbath for a person to carry any sort of burden on this day of the week. Being a poor man, this mat was his bed. Okay? Strangely, you could carry a bed if it had someone on it. But you couldn't carry your bed if it didn't. So, explain that. Um, as I mentioned, the man would have probably felt a panic because of breaking their laws on the Sabbath could mean being stoned. So he seems to blame Jesus here. And here's the most amazing part of these verses. These Jewish leaders ask nothing about his healing. This guy has been sitting here, maybe not sitting there for 38 years, but he's lame for 38 years, okay? It's a small enough town, they probably know this guy. They only want to know is, is who told him that he could pick up his, bread and, his, his bed and walk? We're told in verse 16, they were persecuting Jesus because he did these things on the Sabbath. You know, um, 
A movie uh, that I have enjoyed is uh, the movie Canadian Bacon. Uh, it's a movie about, kind of makes fun of Americans and Canadians and stuff. And, and um, at one point, a group of clumsy, angry Americans drive through Montreal with a hijacked garbage truck. And they have uh, spray-painted on the side of it all sorts of insulting statements against Canadians, things like your mom wears snowshoes and stuff like that. And so a Canadian officer stops them. And the men in the truck are, are, are really worried. They're nervous. It's like, oh, no, you know, what's going to happen? And he's, he's totally disappointed with them. Like, can, can you get out of the truck here? Dan Aykroyd plays his part. You know, it's great. He um, says, okay, come here. I want you to see this. Uh, I want you to tell me what is wrong with this situation. And they're like, uh, well, I try to kind of come up with something. You know, he's like, I'll tell you, this is supposed to be written in English and French. I think that's the same form of idiocy that John is pointing out here in these leaders. How they're clinging to their rules. A man has been healed miraculously by the God of the universe. And they're like, hey, what are you doing carrying that? You know, some of you have experienced religious rules in your life. Maybe they were, you were expected to wear a certain form of clothes or keep your hair a certain length. I'm sure that we all have rules that we cling to instead of Christ without even knowing it. I'm not saying rules are bad. I'm saying, asking the question, what are we clinging to? We have a tendency to look for a chapter and verse to justify why we're okay and someone else is not okay or try to explain to us why is this happening to me? We tend to look for things that will give us a sense of being close to the Lord, even though they only work on the outside of us rather than on our hearts in our relationship with him. I love uh, something that Stephen Wright wrote once. He said, um, I took my car to the mechanic. He told me, I can't fix your brakes, but don't worry, I made your horn louder. <laughs> Horns are important. But they're not meant to be relied on. The point is about what are we clinging to? What defines us? Is it Jesus or rules? What do we think makes God happy with us? Is it the righteousness of Christ that we stand in or is it rules? What do we want people to point people to that can change their lives. Do you really think it's rules or is it Jesus? God does his work from within our hearts outward. And it does, it does change our behavior. It does change our standards of what we expect. Yeah, I believe it's true. Um, a person who's growing in Christ sins less and they're also more grieved by their sin. But he changes us as we cling to Christ more and more. And that's what the point is here. As was the case with the lame man, we find the Jewish leaders standing face to face with their Messiah. The one that they had been preparing everyone for. And they're too fixated on their wrong ideas about God 
to recognize him. What these Jews are clinging to instead of their Messiah is man-centered theology. We read in verses 17 and 18 again, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You might ask, what about their theology is man-centered, J.D.? Why do you get this, this idea or this statement of man-centered theology from this? The answer is that when our theology is not biblical and God-centered, it's man-centered. When our theology is not correct in the seeing that everything revolves around God and we and our relationships and, and what we have to do with our day and our life, that revolves around who God is and what, what he deserves and the glory that he is, is aiming for from this world. When it does not revolve around him, it revolves around us. And we think that he revolves around us. It's just like how if God is not on the throne of your heart, you are. Just like if you're not serving God with your life, you're serving yourself with it. And in the same way, if we're not building our lives and our theology around God and what he tells us about himself, we are building it around ourselves. That's because we're always looking for the opportunity to be God of our lives. And it means that the creator then becomes our servant. These guys followed a tradition that built a whole man-centered theology around following the law and, and also around them being God's chosen people. The Jewish leaders thought that they had the authority to define what activity was acceptable and what was not. The extent of their humility was that they believed that they were a special breed of people whom God had blessed with righteousness. And he who has the righteousness makes the rules in their idea. The fact is that men, they were like men peddling snake oil to the sick they peddled their theology to make people think that God would love them more if they were more like the Jewish leaders. And their ideas were about as helpful in making a person righteous before God as waiting by a pool for a fabled angel to stir the waters. I love how Jesus doesn't argue with them. Right? Over, should this man be able to carry his bed? Should he not? Is it more important that he was healed? Or is it not? Instead, he defends his glory. These guys are saying, hey, get back in line. Follow the rules. Or we may, we may just have to let God judge you through us. To that, Jesus basically responds with, that's interesting. Because I would have to give you permission first. 
His statement about his father and he both working until now, where he says, my father is working until now, and I am working, this is, this is very significant. And you're thinking, it must be because these guys are freaking out, and I don't know why. Okay? The Jews understood that God was continually upholding the universe at all times. And so they had developed the belief and the understanding that, therefore, he's working on the Sabbath. Okay? It's kind of like, okay, God, well, I guess if you have to uphold everything, I guess you're working on the Sabbath. We'll give you that. Okay? I mean, that's kind of sarcastic. I don't know if that's kind of how it developed. But, therefore, they had reason that God was the only person that existed that was allowed to work on the Sabbath. This is how Jesus' statement is both one of claiming that God is his Father and that he is God. He is continually, he continually reveals this by working on the Sabbath as Lord of the Sabbath. And we see that these Jews are picking up on what he's saying. It isn't just about breaking the Sabbath anymore. Jesus is breaking their rules deliberately because he believes that he is the one person that can do it rightfully. Because, yeah, that guy that's allowed to work anytime he wants, that's me. And so, from this point forward, it says... They looked for ways to kill him. Once again, in these Jewish leaders, we have an example of people standing before Jesus, the answer to their greatest needs, and they can't recognize him for who he is. And once again, it's because they're clinging to something else. And once again, we go to 2 Corinthians 4.4 to help explain this to us, where we're told in their case, meaning meaning unbelievers, people that can't recognize who Christ is, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I love these verses because it doesn't just speak to, the, to what's happening for a person that can't believe in Christ. It's pointing also to the tragedy of what they're missing. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And that's what's going on here. So we're like duct tape, right? We cling to things. This isn't a bad thing because we're meant to cling to Christ. We're meant to cling to God. But God in his grace makes us, you know, different than this in that we could cling to something else and still be, come off of that and still be useful. You know, we're not, we're not like this where this, this piece is kind of useless now because it's stuck all over itself. How do we stop what we're clinging to and cling to Christ. You know, whether it's food or sex or a 
acknowledgement by others or um, being uh, respectable in our community or something like that. It always starts with something that is good but is not meant to be clung to. We're meant to cling to Christ. And so when we find that to be the case, it's the same idea. We need to repent, we need to replace, and we're going to need to repeat. Okay? It may mean a matter of, of, of repenting and, real, and, and communicating and setting it straight with, with ourselves and with the Lord. Lord, this is wrong. I have stepped beyond the boundaries of this good thing that you've given me, and it's become sin. And I recognize it as sin. I agree with you that it is sin. And I, and I don't want this instead of you. You know, it might mean realizing I'm on the throne of my heart, Lord, and I don't belong there. You do. Will you please exercise that forgiveness in my relationship with you that was purchased at the cross and let us walk together in fellowship again. And, and you know, in order to get there, we've got to believe a lie. So, you know, if it's food, maybe it's saying, I'm believing the lie that this is going to satisfy me. Or, or, or whichever it is. To, to, it helps to recognize, Lord, this is the lie I'm believing. I'm believing that you're not good enough. I'm believing that you're not great enough in this moment to be what I need. And that's repentance. But you know what? Help it be effective and replace. Replace those lies with the truth. To recognize, you know, Lord, your word is better than food. Your truth, the intimacy that I can have in my relationship with you is better than sex. Lord, being your child is better than being recognized by anyone else. That's the truth. Lord, you, you are, have a plan and it is good and it is best and it, it can be trusted. You, replacing the lies with the truth is a step of repentance to help it be effective. Repenting and replacing. And guess what? You'll have to repeat. Bottom line. Repent, replace, repeat. Repent, replace, repeat. That's what it takes daily to be someone that's clinging to Christ. Bottom line, that's life. That's what it means to look like to move from living in the flesh regularly to walking by the Spirit. It's a constant going back. But God, like I said, we're not this tape. In his grace, he allows us to pull off of what we're clinging to and stick to him. Plain and simple. That's a part of his grace. That's how it works. Let me close this in prayer. God, you are good. You are great. You are gracious. Through Christ, we have the opportunity to 
to connect with you, to walk with you, to have you as our Father, to have a hope that, that will never diminish. We look forward to the hope being realized in you completely in your presence. And until then, Father, it is a daily reminder that we need to cling to you instead of all the other things that surround us, that beckon us. Lord, we don't want to be like the characters, the people in this instance. Having Jesus standing right before them but not being able to let go of what it is that they're clinging to. Lord, I pray that you would grant us repentance every day. Lord, some of us need some really big breakthrough repentance in areas of our lives, meaning we just need to start doing that, Father. We need to start accepting that that's got to be the pattern for us. Lord, don't leave us where we are. Allow us to have more of you in our lives. Allow us to clear out whatever space we need to. Allow us to pull off of clinging whatever, to whatever it is we need to so that we can cling to you. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.